Welcome to Digging In with the Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Janet Atkinson, your host this week, and we are joined by Spencer Tuma. She is the Director of National Legislative Programs with the Missouri Farm Bureau. And Spencer, we have been talking about pulling this together here for, well, over a month, several weeks anyway, uh, trying to get together to talk about the Farm Bill because we know that's going to be a significant part of the conversation here for the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. And we have weird noises coming yeah. in from this building. I don't know what they are, but it does add character. It, it certainly does. There's a lot going on at the home office this week. If you're listening and you're a member, you'll know there's a lot of updates going on at the building. We're getting a new roof, I yes. think, this week. And also they're repaving the parking lot. So I don't know what rumbling piece of equipment we're hearing, but apologies to folks if there's <laughs> feedback. We're like looking at each other like, yeah. what is that noise? <laughs> Spencer, what did you do? Yeah, no, I promise it's not my phone ringing or anything like that. <laughs> Well, as I said, we're going to dig into the farm bill. Now, we're going to do this the last week of the month between now and September. So we've got about four or five people lined up during this time to to talk to, to dig mm-hmm. into the farm bill, where we are through the process, what maybe might be more of a hot button issue this time, what might, maybe might lose a little heat. So, uh, But we're going to start things off with Spencer. Spencer is our resident farm bill expert. So <laughs> Way to talk me up. The expectation's high. Yeah, yeah, no pressure here. Now, Spencer, first of all, give us a little background on your farm bill experience and how you got to where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so kind of farm bill history, if yeah. you will. So if you think about the very first farm bill, it was passed in 1933. So the farm bill has an almost 100-year history of working itself through the U.S. Congress. Now, generally speaking, farm bills are passed every five years, mm-hmm. and they're very large bills. They pretty much fund USDA programs for five years at a time. So the last farm bill was passed in uh, late 2018. So it was right after I came on staff with Farm Bureau, which was in August 2017. So the first time I worked a farm bill in my role with Farm Bureau, I was really kind of getting into the into the conversation midstream, right? A lot of the conversations had already taken place. It's been really interesting to see those conversations unfold from the passage of the last farm bill to now, because everybody jokes that we start writing the next farm mm-hmm. bill the day after mm-hmm. the, the current farm bill is signed. So um, we're now kind of coming into that new cycle. Certainly, a lot going on politically right now, uh, not just with the Farm Bill, just in Washington in general, but all of that impacts Farm Bill discussions. Now, I mentioned that the Farm Bill has been passed uh, about every five years since 1933. A lot of things have been added to the Farm Bill. Mm-hmm. So you think about, you know, 1976, there was a nutrition title added to the Farm Bill, which included um, things like nutrition assistance programs and the school lunch program as well. And then in 1985, another big year of changes for the Farm Bill when we added conservation programs into the legislation. So it's really evolved over the years. Uh, There were certainly big changes in 2014. That's probably, uh, if you look at recent history, what most people think of as a year of a a revolutionary Farm Mm -hmm. Bill. That's the term that people still use when they really reworked how farm safety net programs work. Um, But we're looking forward to seeing what Congress comes up with this next round. There's a lot to discuss. Absolutely. Uh, Digging into one of the issues you mentioned, uh, nutrition added decades and decades Mm -hmm. ago into the Farm Bill. There's been a very strong pull in recent years of Farm Bill discussions. Some folks want to pull the nutrition title Mm -hmm. away and make it less of a conversation whenever the Farm Bill comes around. However, uh, there's a lot of folks that believe that that is a terrible idea because there are so many people who have to vote and work on the farm bill or 
issues related in Washington who mm-hmm. don't have an agriculture background, who yep. don't understand the ties, much less the ties, of course, between what happens in rural America mm-hmm. and what happens on the grocery store shelves. So uh, have you heard any rumblings? Is that conversation still part of the argument taking place? I think there are always going to be people, Janet, who believe those two things should be separate. They believe that they don't belong together. But the political reality is that uh, both of those things don't really have the political uh, strength to Mm -hmm. pass without the other one. And so American Farm Bureau is a really big proponent of ensuring that those two things work together. And I think, you know, as I think about um, the arguments on both sides of that, I think one thing that's important for us to remember is a lot of rural Missourians utilize those nutrition programs as well. This Mm -hmm. is not an urban versus rural Mm -hmm. necessarily battle. I think a lot of times that's what it's painted out to be. Um, And it's easy to think that because, as you mentioned, you know, not a lot of people in Congress are engaged in production agriculture Mm -hmm. or represent rural districts. So it it can easily become that urban versus rural discussion. But I I think it's important for us all to remember a lot of people in rural America use those nutrition programs as well, Mm -hmm. even if they're not engaged in production. So it's really important politically that they're able to stay together uh, because if they didn't, quite frankly, I don't think either one of them could pass on Mm -hmm. their own. I think that's definitely a good point. Now, uh, the farm safety net, of course, that's Mm -hmm. another key point that we hear and talk about and certainly is a priority for Farm Bureau, but also for, of course, our membership as well. Absolutely. So uh, we talk about nutrition, and I I think it's actually appropriate that you mention that first Mm -hmm. because it does take up the large majority Mm -hmm. of Farm Bill funding. Over 80% is predicted to be in this next bill. But at Farm Bureau, we really focus on the strength of the farm safety net. Mm -hmm. That includes a couple of different things. It includes crop insurance. So that's a really, really big title for us. Uh, It's a really important program, helps farmers manage their risk, particularly in times of disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, Crop insurance obviously helps row crop farmers, but doesn't necessarily help livestock producers. So there's also livestock disaster programs that are administered by the Risk Management Agency. Important to keep those strong, especially as we continue to see drought um, that impacts livestock producers Mm -hmm. as well um, and other natural disasters. The other side of that coin is what we call Title I programs. So the ARC program and the PLC program, you know, those are designed to assist farmers and ranchers in times of low prices or low revenue. Uh, And it's important that those remain strong particularly because we continue to see high input costs. And that's something that the Farm Bill is really not designed to address. But those farm safety net programs help to uh, soften the blow, if you will, of some of those high input prices that we continue to see. I remember when ARC and PLC were first introduced. Mm-hmm. I want to say that was maybe back 2008-ish. 2014 summer. Farm Bill is when they Wasn't were that? officially put okay. into law. Now, the 2014 Farm Bill, interesting Farm Bill trivia, was actually supposed to be written a couple years of earlier course. and then was delayed <laughs> uh, and famously, you know, failed. And, and there's a whole lot there. If you're interested in Farm Bill history, we could have a whole conversation about that. But 2014 mm-hmm. is when they were put in. So and there was a lot of confusion about those two as far mm-hmm. as which one was most ideal yep. for each producer. Have they gotten the some of the, the bumps in the road ironed out? My understanding and, and what I hear anecdotally from farmers and ranchers is yes. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, you still have to choose what is best for your operation. And mm-hmm. um, some years that might be PLC and some years that might be ARC. Um, they did make some adjustments in the 2018 Farm Bill on um, the ability to elect those programs. So I, I believe originally you had to elect for the next five years and now you have the option to change that year after year if you think it would be beneficial for your operation so a lot of the kinks have been worked out 
Uh, in fact, I don't hear much from farmers and ranchers about massive overhauls to those programs. Mm -hmm. One thing we are looking at, though, is, as I mentioned, you know, input prices are high. And those reference prices that are um, used to trigger those ARC and PLC programs, they have remained the same. Um, but certainly the cost of production is higher. Mm -hmm. So we would like to see some adjustments made to those reference prices to be more reflective of current uh, current production costs. Definitely makes sense. I'm sure a lot of people agree with that idea. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, making headlines here in just the recent week, we've had uh, a lot of conversation on Capitol Hill with the debt ceiling yes. and now moving forward. It sounds like this could also have an impact surprise, surprise on the farm bill. Yeah, but uh, breaking news pretty much. You probably didn't hear it here first, but you're hearing it here pretty early. So, yeah. um, you know, certainly there's still some details to be worked out, but our understanding is there are some provisions in the debt ceiling agreement that potentially will be voted on in the House of Representatives today regarding changes to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. Obviously, that's the program that the nutrition title of the Farm Bill primarily funds. So, um, there are a lot of moving parts and the votes are not counted yet. So mm -hmm. I think we want to be careful about speaking with too much certainty. It is Congress after mm -hmm. all. Um, but the proposal would raise the age for um, able-bodied working adults without dependents. Um, they have to be job seeking or pursuing employment in order to receive those SNAP benefits anywhere between ages 18 to 49. This would raise that requirement, raise the age of it up to 54, and that'd be phased in over a period of years. So it does um, increase the work requirements for those who are receiving uh, the SNAP benefit. And you and I chatted about this here beforehand, and you were saying that that's something that uh, has been a push mm -hmm. in the Farm Bill discussions for a number of years. So if they do get it here on the debt ceiling side, they can take it off the table whenever it comes to the farm bill. Yeah. But I, the cynic in me is like, okay, <laughs> what does this bring into the conversation that they're like, okay, well, we got that. We want this now. I think that's a very fair point. You know, work requirements are always a sticking point yeah. in farm bill discussions, particularly from those uh, on the more far right or the Freedom mm -hmm. Caucus. That, that's probably, if you're involved in farm policy, you hear Freedom Caucus all the time. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's been a demand of theirs for several years. I think it certainly changes the conversation. I think there's still always going to be arguments about eligibility for any program, particularly in the nutrition uh, title, if you are uh, more on the Republican line of thinking. Uh, however, I do think it, it certainly changes how those conversations may come about. And Congresswoman, excuse me, not Congresswoman, Senator Chairwoman Debbie Sabanow on the mm -hmm. Senate Ag Committee has already come out and said, well, now that we've taken care of this in the debt ceiling, there's really no need for us to discuss it in farm bill negotiations. Uh, I appreciate her enthusiasm, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that that is going to totally make the conversation go away. Although I think it certainly does signal um, some changes as we move forward. You reminded me a while ago that uh, she's getting ready to retire. Yes. So this is her swan song and, you know, right off into the sunset. So I'm sure she'd love to have an easy conversation. And she's been there a lot of years. Well, and I think that's a really good segue into one other thing we wanted to cover. You know, Cong or I keep saying Congresswoman. I'm gonna, <laughs> I don't know what has gotten into me today. I've, I have apparently had too much coffee. My brain's firing too fast. Um, Senator Stabenow, Chairwoman Stabenow, is a very, very big proponent of conservation programs. Yeah. And we know that the Biden administration has a very strong push for climate smart agriculture, climate resiliency, whatever buzzword you want to use to describe that, uh, that's up to you. But um, Senator Stabenow is a big proponent of that as well. Mm -hmm. And I know that that will be a priority for her in this farm bill. As you mentioned, it is her swan song. I'm sure she would really like to retire with a couple of landmark conservation mm -hmm. programs under her belt. 
Um, and Farm Bureau, you know, we certainly appreciate conservation programs. We actually are high users of working lands programs in mm-hmm. agriculture. Um, but, you know, our goal and every time I talk to Missouri's congressional delegation, what I reiterate is we want those programs to actually help farmers. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we want to take good care of the environment. But we want the people who are benefiting from that to be farmers and ranchers because they're the ones who are putting those practices in, in on the farm. And that comes around to throughout my career as a broadcaster, uh, one of the questions that I would get from folks in the agriculture industry, uh, whenever they're removed from some of these conservation mm-hmm. heavy areas, yeah. uh, is, well, folks are getting paid not to farm. Right. You know, how can we afford to do this whenever it's just land and they're getting paid not to do anything with it? But it's not really the case. Well, and I think that's a really good point that you've brought up and and something that we try to inject into the conversation with legislators. So I think legislators hear that a Mm -hmm. lot as well. It's like, you know, we're paying farmers to have the land idle and and not be farming. And in Missouri, certainly that's not necessarily true. And and from Farm Bureau's perspective, um, we're very much um, in favor of working lands programs. So we think land retirement programs do have a place in the world. There certainly is land uh, throughout our state and throughout the nation that that is particularly too sensitive to erosion or other mm-hmm. issues that probably does not need to be in production. Um, but there is a lot of land that has the ability to be good. The practices can be good for the environment and they can also be productive farm ground. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program or EQIP. Uh, Missouri is consistently ranked in the top 10 of states that are heavy users of the EQIP program. In fact, for the past several years, we've had far more applicants for that program than we could fund projects for. Um, and we have strong member adopted policy in favor of programs like that. Um, and, and what we try to do and what we try to share with our policymakers, our elected officials, is that, you know, let's be sure that the dollars that will likely be put into the conservation title are used for programs like that, where there's clearly a demonstrated need and a demonstrated desire that farmers initiate that process by going into their USDA office. Let's not put mandated one-size-fits-all programs on the books where it's so prohibitive that farmers won't even walk in the door of the local USDA office. Because at the end of the day, that doesn't really do anything to help the environment if farmers aren't utilizing the programs. And, you know, I do know that uh, USDA has made a number of changes for some of these various programs, mm-hmm. whether it's conservation or otherwise, just trying to shorten the application process. Yes. And boy, I know that there's a lot of folks <laughs> that have got to be appreciative of that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that goes back to, I'll call that farm program accessibility. Maybe that's yeah. a, I mean, maybe I can coin a new buzzword while we're here on the podcast. Uh, farm pro USDA program accessibility, but Um, making it easy for farmers to participate and demonstrating that there's going to be a net benefit to them on the farm is going to be key to getting farmers to adopt those programs. And it's important to remember one program that works for somebody in Vernon County, Mm -hmm. maybe where I'm from, um, may not necessarily be a great fit for somebody in Texas County, Mm -hmm. right where you're from. And Mm -hmm. so it's important to have those voluntary market-based incentives so that farmers can really choose what works best for their Mm -hmm. operation. And if there's anybody wondering about, you know, well, why does it need to be any easier, da da da, you know, all those kind of sure. questions coming about, I want to point out that there are some things through USDA, as with I'm sure many other government mm-hmm. programs outside USDA, but whenever the process takes months yep. to go through and get an approval made before you can actually pull the trigger on anything, mm-hmm. well, it's pretty easy just to move on and do things that you can knock out right now. Absolutely. So, you know, keep that in mind whenever you're talking a month's application process just to get the simplest of things done. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I want to point out now this is the first time we've had the chance to sit down and talk about the farm bill. So we're going to continue the farm bill discussion. We're going to let Spencer off the hook, though, after this month. <laughs> so before I let you go, is there yeah. anything that you also wanted to address? Anything that we left on the table? You know, I don't think there's necessarily, Janet, anything specific to farm policy. But I would say if you're a Farm Bureau member, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to engage in the farm bill discussion over the coming year. Um, particularly, you know, from a Missouri perspective, we have Congressman Mark Alford, who sits on the House Ag Committee. It's the committee responsible for writing the farm bill in the House. Um, I know he and other members of Missouri's congressional delegation and our two senators um, are interested in hearing from folks about, Mm -hmm. you know, specific changes and priorities that people may have as the farm bill gets written. So um, if you're a member, be on the lookout for opportunities to engage. We'll be sharing those as we're made aware of them. That may be an opportunity to weigh in via a comment on a website or even an in-person event here. Um, We expect that we may have some of those throughout the summer. So um, just stay tuned. Also, if you are having issues accessing any of the USDA programs we've mentioned or others, please don't hesitate to contact us. We can certainly help try to build that bridge and make that connection if you have questions about specific programs in your area. And it definitely is important to highlight uh, what is important here in specific area. We'll use Missouri as an example because Northern Missouri and the Boot Hill you got two different worlds of agriculture. Mm -hmm. So uh, speak up and let folks know what's important to you. Now, again, we have been talking with Spencer Tuma. She is the director of National Legislative Program for the Missouri Farm Bureau. And I'll give you just a little bit of a tease. Next month at the end of June, when we discuss the farm bill, actually, it's already June. So (laughs) pretty much. Yeah, I guess last day of May, that's hard to believe. Whoa. we're, We're already upon this. So but the last week of June, we are going to talk with Andrew Walmsley. Now, Andrew, of course, he is with the American Farm Bureau Federation. He's been in D.C. for a number of years yes. himself. So he's been through this farm bill process as well. So we'll dig a little deeper, deeper with him as well and talk about what is taking place with the farm bill when that time rolls around. And he'll give us his background on it as well, too. In the meantime, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. And we hope you will again next week. You have been listening to Digging In with the Missouri Farm Bureau.